All right, here we go. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with your word and your Holy Spirit. Grant that we who need your words for life may have ears to hear and hearts that understand and cling to your promises. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. All right. Uh, so here's what's happening today. Like I said in church, we're going to start a new Bible study. And let me just uh, see if I can get this a little bit better here. I'm going to connect together a few things uh, that are, I think, really relevant. Like I said, whether or not you ha- are, have kids in the school, whether you are a kid, whether you stopped thinking about kids decades ago, um, some of the things that I'm going to talk about today and in the subsequent weeks are helpful in understanding kind of the state of our world, why things are the way they are in our world. And a lot of it has to do with how we think about education, um, and more importantly, how we think about people, what people are and what they are for. To kick this off, I want to start just by taking a look at this passage from Proverbs. Sorry, it, you can't, I don't know if you, I have to try and get out of the way here a little bit more. Um, just listen to this passage from Proverbs chapter 7. This is where wisdom starts to get introduced in Proverbs. Here's what it says. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So my first question for you is just at face value, what's going on here? Who is talking to whom? Really generically, not somebody specific. A father to a son, right? It happens to be Solomon (coughs) talking to his sons. Maybe not a son in particular, but just talking from the wisdom of a father, okay? A father to a son. Now, his advice here is to keep his teaching, keep my teaching, what I have taught you, close to yourself. How close? On your fingers and in the tablet of your heart, right? What I'm giving to you, the father says to his son, is more important than anything else you might acquire. And he sums it up in this word here, this key word, wisdom, okay? What is the benefit, according to this passage, what is the benefit of wisdom, Yeah, and in this case, it's specifically so you can stay away from the adulteress with her smooth words, right? So good advice from a father to a son, right? Make friends with wisdom. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, so that you can resist the allure of the smooth words of the adulteress. Now, one of the things I want to point out to you is that while it is important for sons to pay attention to this advice when it comes to women in particular, there is a a broader category here. So what other kinds of things fit into the category of smooth words? Logan. Yeah, so, so somebody who comes to you and, and appeals to your pride, right? How delightful is that? Somebody says, hey, you're great. You're fantastic. By the way, here's something I think you should do that you actually shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing, right? They appeal to your pride using smooth words. What other... What other examples can you think of? Right. Yeah. Anything that entices you away from God's word fits into this category of smooth words that lead to adultery of some sort, spiritual adultery, you could say. Now, you know that this is from Proverbs. If I took this off of here and you didn't know where it came from, Oh, shoot. <laughs> Thank you. Man, I need a little bit more coffee. It, pretend that you didn't know where it came from and that I was a little bit more clever. Would you know that this is from the, would, you, would this have to be from the Bible? No, right? This is just like, this is good, sound instruction from a father to a son. And one of the things that I want to point out to you is that For a long time in the history of the world, this was kind of common sense. Listen to the instruction of your parents. 
Store up wisdom for yourself so that you can resist seductive, smooth words, okay? Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in detail as we go along here. Um, but Jen, let me just offer uh, a couple of disclaimers here. So for one thing, um, I I'm not, um, have no pretenses that I'm an expert on education. Um, I'm coming to this topic from a couple of different angles. One of them in the first place is as a father, right? So I have thought about these things as a father. Um, what do I want for my children? What uh, is best for my children? This is how I, one of the ways I'm thinking about it. But another way that I've thought about it, which is why you're all here today, is as a pastor, right? So what does the church, what does God's word more specifically have to say about education? Does it have anything to say about it? Does it matter what God's word says about education? Obviously, I think it does. And I think it's important that we talk about these things um, so that we can grow together and also so that we can kind of put up a fight against the way the world is going. The way the world is going. If I ask you, how's the world going? <laughs> okay, yeah, you don't even have to answer that. All right. Okay. First question that I want to entertain has something to do with goals. So just think about goals for a second. This is my last really cool picture. It takes me a long time to find cool pictures on the internet. So this is the last. Well, no, I, got, I have one more. Now you're going to be in suspense about it. Okay, so when you're, just think about if you're going on a, a road trip, um, you want to go see the, you know, the biggest ball of twine in South Dakota somewhere. It's probably there in South Dakota. You need to know, first of all, that that's where you're going, right? Okay. Darwin Minutes, okay. All right. See? Okay. So first, it's interesting, isn't it? This is actually very helpful. You're playing right into my hand here. It's helpful to know where you want to go. It's helpful to know how to get there, Right? I want to see the biggest ball of twine. How am I going to get there? Well, I better not go to South Dakota. I've got to go to Darwin, <laughs> Minnesota, right? Now, you might think to yourself, look, um, that's fine if you have somewhere specific you want to go, but are there ever times where you don't have a specific goal in mind? You could talk about this, Logan, right? You just get in the car and drive to Montana because you're 19 years old, right? And you don't need to sleep, okay? So you, you just go. Now, the thing is that even though you might not have any specific goals in your mind, Somebody has some goals in mind, okay? If you're just a passenger, the person who's driving <coughs> has some goals in mind. If you're driving and you say, I'm just going to go this way, guess what? At some point, somebody at least limits the possibilities in front of you. You come to a T, you can go this way or this way. You can't go straight, okay? So somebody is making decisions or at least narrowing your choices. That's why it's really important to talk about goals, to think specifically about goals especially when it comes to education. I think that with a lot of things in our lives as Americans, um, and there's a whole bunch of things that we could talk about here, it is very easy for us to simply accept the choices that have been given to us and not ever ask the, the more basic question, what's the goal here? Why am I considering among these choices? Right? How did these choices end up in front of me? Okay? So let me pose this question to you. What is the goal of education? What is the goal of education? Make people smarter. Good answer. So we got a problem that people are dumb. <laughs> and we're going to make them smarter. Good. What else? What other goals? Make our kids into adults. Make our kids into adults. Good. Kids need to become adults. Now, that's interesting because that's going to happen whether you educate them or not, right? You're going to go from there to there, and you're going to be an adult, right? So you're saying that there's something about being a kid that needs to be formed or shaped in order to become an adult. Good. What else? Yeah. Lifelong learners. Lifelong learners. Good. Some critical thinking. Good. Yeah, critical thinking. And I want, I'm going to just take this a second here to pause on this word. This word, critical, is a word that has taken on new shape in our world, okay? So in some sense, all thinking is critical thinking, right? All thinking is critical thinking. And we emphasize critical because basically when you're thinking, you need to make judgments about things. You need to decide things, okay? In our world now, when you see the word critical, it doesn't always mean critical thinking. Have you ever heard of critical race theory? Okay. Critical race theory. 
Uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a moment. But critical race theory has the premise that you need to be critical to the point of complete skepticism of everything that you have received as a result of the fact that you are white, for instance. Okay? So you need to be critical of your white privilege. You need to be critical of everything your parents taught you about colonialism, about American ideals. You need to be critical about those things to the point of starting from scratch. Okay? That's very different from critical thinking. Critical thinking doesn't start from scratch. You start with some things that you know and you work them together. Critical theory, which abounds in our world today, says you've got to start from scratch. Okay? Well, pay, remember, hold that, di that difference in mind and pay attention when you see the word critical. Try and pay attention to what is going on there. Are they talking about making sound judgments on the basis of an objective truth? Or is it throw out everything that came beforehand? Any other suggestions here? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So hold on to that thought for a minute, because this is not a stated goal of education. This is not a stated goal of education. But I'm going to show you where this comes in, why this comes in. Now, I'm a little bit surprised because none of you have given... Oh, okay, 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 all right, go ahead, Barb. It's usually required on your resume. Yeah. It's, you get paid based on how much you do in the past. So. So, so it has something to do with getting a job, right? <clears throat> Harder to get a job if you don't have a high school diploma. Harder to get a job, perhaps, if you don't have a college degree, maybe. I mean, that was, interestingly, up for my generation... I don't think it's this case, the case anymore, and I think it's a really helpful thing. But for my generation, it was just understood that if you want to get a good job, you've got to go to college. Right? You do well in high school in order to go to college to get a good job. Why does that have to be the case? Right? It doesn't. Right? Fortun fortunately, fortunately we, we're, there's some healthy criticism of that notion going on right now. Okay? But getting a job is very important. Yeah. Teaching them how to solve problem solving. Problem solving. Good. All right. So you can see a lot of things that are part of the goal of education. Now, one of the things that I want to point out to you is the difference between primary goals and secondary goals. Primary goals and secondary goals. So secondary goals are goals that serve a higher goal. Okay? And in some sense, all of these goals can only be secondary goals. Right? So for instance, why do you want to get a job? This should be obvious, but to, to make money, why do you have, want to have money? So you can live. Okay, so something about living is more fundamental than getting a job. Getting a job is in service, right, to that primary goal. Teddy? Money, man money management and not getting credit cards. Yeah, good. So you learn some practical life skills. That's useful, right? Okay. Uh, hold all these thoughts in your mind. I want to show you, um, like I said before, you have all thought about all of those things, and you see them as goals in education and something that can be accomplished by education. Somebody else has thought about the goals, too. Uh, American in Education Infrastructure has thought about goals. The Minnesota Department of Education has thought about goals. So here are the explicitly stated goals of education in Minnesota. The mission of public education in Minnesota, a system for lifelong learning, is to ensure individual academic achievement and informed citizenry and a highly productive workforce. Okay? Individual academic achievement and informed citizenry and a highly productive workforce. This is helpful to, to understand what we're after in education. Okay? I think the first one here, individual academic achievement, is a little bit redundant. Because basically we're saying the point of public education is to be good at being educated. Right? The point of going to school is to be good at going to school. Right? To succeed in school. That's a laudable goal. right? You don't want to go to school and have your goal be to fail in school. Um, so yes, individual academic achievement. An informed citizenry. We don't want a nation of stupid people. Right? We want to make people smarter. Why? Why do we want to have informed citizenry? Because you are weak as a country if you're not united together in the way you think and the way you think and know and the things that you're ready to defend. Okay, so somehow it's good for our country to have people who are informed, right? So you can see that there's a primary goal there. 
above the secondary goal. An informed citizenry, why? So that our country can be strong. Maybe something like that. Or maybe so that people, when they vote for their leaders, don't make knee-jerk decisions, right? They can make informed decisions in a democracy, okay? Um, again, I think that this is kind of a secondary goal, right? The point is that we have a nation of people who can make, who, who know things in order to make decisions, okay? Um, one of the things that is missing here is what to do with the information that you've been informed with, right? So you can know everything there is to know about American civics, okay? But if you don't know what is good, you're not going to use that information well, okay? So this is just getting you knowledge, but it's missing something about wisdom, you know, a highly informed citizenry can be tyrannical. They can know lots of things and do evil with them, all right? This last one, I think, is actually the more important. This is the most, the one that really stands out. The goal is to make a highly productive workforce, okay? This is something that comes through in uh, legislation that has been passed by the Minnesota Department of Education, stuff that... Um, uh, is titled, for instance, World's Best Workforce. So this is from the Kimball School's website. What is the world's best workforce legislation? Minnesota schools strive to provide the best educational opportunities for all children, providing an education to Minnesota youth that leads to creating life, creating the world's best workforce is a goal that must be addressed throughout every child's life. So this hits on that goal that you mentioned earlier, getting a job, right? And we want not just to have people who do jobs, but what kind of people do we want to have? Highly productive people. Highly productive people. Why is that the case? What's that, Chrissy? We're not doing very well. Oh, good. Okay, so <laughs> we got lots of unproductive people, that's for sure, right? Okay, good. Yeah, um, but think about why this is the case. Uh, there's a little bit of history here, and I just want you to put yourself, you just, just look at the world right now and see how highly valued productivity is, right? Efficiency. Ford assembly line construction style in, in industry. The Industrial Revolution is kind of at the root of a lot of this. So thinking about uh, what's the most important th thing for people to do, well, we need to produce more stuff better, right? Think about big industry in our country. The, the, the more stuff you can make at a lower cost, the better it is, right? That's one of the chief values in our country. You know, Walmart, right? You can go to Walmart and you can select from any item on the shelf that you want and you can find the cheapest one, right? You can find the cheapest one. This goes back to something that is more fundamental. So maybe you recognize the name John Dewey. Recognize that name? He's called the father of modern education. John Dewey was one of the signers of what is called the Humanist Manifesto, a document that has been updated over the last century, signed by people as recently as the early 2000s, such as Richard Dawkins, a, a famous uh, uh, atheist who does combat against Christianity and against tradition in the world. One of the premises of the Humanist Manifesto is that people don't have souls. People don't have souls. They are the product of evolution, which means that you all sitting here are just a bunch of lumps of clay. You don't have souls. Well, what do you do with a lump of clay? Well, you try to make something useful out of it, right? It's not good in and of itself. Something useful needs to be made out of it. Well, how about something productive, okay? This goes way, way back. The roots of this are at the beginning of the 20th century. John Dewey, in reforming education, says, look, we need to get rid of tradition, get rid of things that have been handed down to us. We need to get rid of things that appeal to the soul of a person because there is no such thing. Instead, when we are educating people, we need to make them productive. Okay. We need to make them productive. So this is uh, the stated goal of education. And it is, it is I, I think, most intuitive, right? When, you, when, you, when I think, first of all, what is the point of education, the first answer that often comes to mind is so that you can learn enough to get a job, right? So you can, so you can do work. Okay? What other adjectives, just engage in a thought experiment here, what other adjectives could be used besides productive? What other kinds of workforces might we have? Okay, efficient, yep. Or effective. Or effective. Creative. Creative, good. Elaborate. Elaborate. So this is what we 
kind of describing something we all have in mind and kind of wish was in place. Okay. Yeah, so you can see kind of a deficiency here. These things would be good, right? Create the creative, right? Yeah. What else? Diverse. Diverse. That is one of the stated goals. Right? Reliable. Reliable. Now you're on to something here. Sorry, you Originality goes with creativity. How about honest and moral? How about that? Honest and what? What is moral? Well, Dorsey. Yeah. Which is better, a highly productive workforce or a highly honest workforce? Depends who you're asking. I'm asking you. I would say reliable and honest. Reliable and honest. What else? How about this one? Wise. Okay. Now let's go with, with, with Dorothy for a second here. Honest and moral. Why are those adjectives not used in this definition? Why is not the goal a highly moral workforce? They would contradict themselves if they put honest and moral in it because if we don't have souls, then we're just, we, you know, we're supposed to be guided, we're supposed to listen to what we're told, and we're not supposed to have free choice or the ability to be able to contradict anything that we were told to. Yes, good. So back that up to say the first thing that you said again a little bit louder so everybody can hear it. You said something about not having souls. <laughs> they, they would contradict themselves. They would, yes, they would contradict themselves if we had soul because being honest and moral would make you want to contradict things that they may not want you to contradict. Right, that's absolutely true. Not to mention the fact that according to naturalism, according to evolutionary theory, according to progressivism, there is no such thing as morality. What decides what's right and wrong? How you feel. Okay. How you feel decides what's right and wrong. So how can we possibly teach people what is right and wrong when it's completely subjective? When it changes from one person to the next? Okay. So in some sense, what I want you to see is that this is, this is a laudable goal. Productive people is a good. That's a good thing. The reason why it's not highly moral people or highly wise people or highly honest people, or simply good people, is because that would be a contradiction in terms. Right? That would fly against the prevailing worldview that governs our world right now. That there is no such thing as an absolute good. That your morality is your morality and don't impose it on me. That what you think is true is true for you, but it's not true for me. Okay? So there's an inherent limitation here. You simply can't. In a system that rests on naturalism, and materialism, and evolutionary ideas, evolutionary psychology and biology, you simply can't teach what is good. Okay? Good. Now, this, that's a really good question. Those things aren't, are, is it true that those things aren't required for productivity? Now, you'll find in business, for instance, a really common ideas that it's good for you to be virtuous. It's good for you, uh, a, famous, um, a famous organizational psychologist named Adam Grant pioneered in the, study, the field of organizational psychology. He's a young guy, the youngest tenured professor at the Wharton School of Business, and he wrote a great book about give and take. Why should you give to other people? Because it helps facilitate relationships that make you both more productive. Okay? You shouldn't give to people because it's good to give to people. You should give to people so that it makes you and others more productive. Okay? So there is room for it, but it's only as a secondary goal to the more primary goal, okay? Now, at this point, I want so just, just uh, so that you can see, this is the best we can do when our basis is there's no such thing as good and bad, and you don't have a soul, okay? But there's a myth at play here, which I call the myth of neutrality. Somebody else called it this, but I still want it. I don't know who called it that. Let me erase some things so you can see. The myth of neutrality is pointing out the, the fact that if we say, I'm not going to say what's good and bad, or right and wrong, or true or false, about the really lofty things like morality or ethics, if I'm going to say there's no such thing as truth when it comes to goodness, somebody else is. 
So here's the premise. Everybody believes in something. In a room full of people, if everybody sitting here said, look, your truth is your truth, and I'm going to have my truth, you can decide what's good for you, and I'll decide what's good for me. In a room full of people who are like that, the one person who has some conviction, who says, nope, this is true, this is good, that person tyrannizes everyone else. Okay? So, when we stop saying that God created the world, somebody else told us where the world came from. Okay? When we said, you can decide for yourself where the world came from, somebody else decided for us. Okay? Think about sexuality. When we said, how you think about your sex, or what's good and bad when it comes to sex, that's up to you. Guess what? Somebody else told us what is good. So now there is a um, kind of this delusion that while we're creating a highly productive workforce, somebody has told us what a good workforce is, and it is inclusive. Right? This is why huge corporations like Chase Bank have inclusivity training, right? where you have to basically agree not to hold to the truth about sex. Why does that matter? Because they have decided that that was what makes for good workers. So my point is this. Somebody, while we're, while, while we're ostensibly only teaching, creating a, product, a productive workforce, somebody, somebody has in mind what a good workforce is. And it involves this. Or most recently, like I talked about before, critical race theory. You ever heard of this book, White Fragility? Any of you shocked to find out in recent times that just because you're white, you're a racist? Right? I mean, shocking, right? Um, but this is the premise of critical race theory. And just to illuminate this point a little bit further, um, the Minnesota House of Representatives is considering legislation right now that would make ethnic studies one of the core requirements for education in all schools in Minnesota. Um, this is a, sounds okay at first glance. We teach ethnic studies to some degree in social studies, right? When you learn about other cultures, you're learning ethnic studies. But that word ethnic studies is a freighted word. It is full of baggage. One of the reasons why you can know this, you can identify this, is because historically in Minnesota, there have been four main requirements for education. You could, you could guess them. Reading, right? Math, science, social studies, something like that. It's, there's four of them. It's actually meet, read, it's, uh, English, math and science, social studies, health and PE. Four requirements. <laughs> Number five that they want to introduce is called indigenous education. Indigenous education. Okay. Alongside those other four subjects, indigenous education. In, the, in this legislation, indigenous education is kind of um, um, a mask for what appears later in the definitions of the legislation, including words like ethnic studies, anti-racist, critical theory. Okay. So the point in introducing indigenous education is not simply that we understand other cultures around us, but that we learn that our culture, your I don't care who you are, that your culture is inherently oppressive, okay? and that you need to give it up, that you need to start from scratch. That's one of the things that's at the root of this. Um, one of the other reasons why this is alarming is because for all schools to teach indigenous education, the requirement is that they must teach using tribally approved curricula must be approved by the tribes, and if you don't do it, you are reported to the Department of Human Rights. Right? You're not reported to the Department of Education for not meeting certain standards, but you're reported to the, to the Department of Human Rights for violating someone else's human rights. Okay? So my point is simply this. Someone else is deciding what is good. When we don't say what is good, when we're satisfied with productive, somebody else will tell us what is good. Now, one of the reasons why this is so hard for us to answer, so hard for us to engage, is because a more fundamental question is at stake. We've talked about this a little bit already. The premise of the Humanist Manifesto, the premise of progressivism, the premise of naturalism is that you don't have a soul. That's clearly not true. Right? It's clearly not true. The more fundamental question that we have to ask when it comes to education is, what is a human being? We want to know what we're doing educated. We want to know what it means for a kid to become an adult. We need to know what a human being is. Are we just taking a little machine and turning them into a bigger machine? Right? Or are we taking somebody with a soul and shaping that soul? Okay? Two vastly different enterprises. Okay? So here's the question. What is a human being? What is your answer to that question? Logan. That 
human being is not only a living creature that goes about and does functions and has purposes, it also has a conscience and it knows right from wrong and yeah. it can develop morals and <coughs> all sorts of things that nothing else can. Good. So your conscience and your soul are integral. You can't separate that from who you are as a human being. You can't say, look, I'm just going to deal with the mechanical part of me right now. They know this in medicine. They found that when patients are treated too mechanically, just like a machine, and they're not given patient-to-doctor uh, contact like another human being, their results, the outcomes are far worse. Right? If you only ever talk to a doctor over your email, and they never looked you in the eye or shook your hand or touched your body to inspect you, you would feel dehumanized. And they, they recognize that, right? Should be the same with education. Okay? So when you asserted that you're a creation of God. It's almost like you're a you're a plant in the audience. Look at this. <laughs> what is a human being? Okay. So yes, that is the starting place. Now notice how right off the bat, this puts us completely outside of anything that could fall within modern education. This can't be granted to anybody. Who are you to say that God created the world or that God created you or that you were created in God's image? What makes you so special? Well, God said so. Okay, okay that's, not the, that's the starting place. But there is another really important premise that cannot be missed. And that is that we are fallen and corrupted by sin. This is why we need to make people smarter. Okay? Because our intelligence has been corrupted. Okay? This is why people need to learn what is good because by nature, we are bad. Now again, you can see how that flies in the face of naturalism. According to John Dewey, however you are, whenever you appear in this world is just fine. Let's just, let's just see what happens as you express yourself throughout the course of your life. Christians say something quite different. I don't want to see how you're going to express yourself. I know that's going to end up badly. We need to do something. We need to shape you. We all need to be shaped because we are fallen and corrupted by sin. We love things that are evil and hate what is good. We love the lie and hate the truth. Right? If that's true, if that's true, then we have a completely different starting place for thinking about what makes a human being and also what the goal of education is. Yeah, that's right. That? Yeah. So now, I, I, I know that these things are obvious to you, this, this business about, about being created, about being corrupted by sin. But one of the, just rewind for a second and remember that the moment we sort of say, we can step back from these truths in this or that venue, we have let somebody else tell us what is true. Okay? The moment we say, well, we're fine talking about God being the creator and us falling into sin and having been redeemed by Christ, redeemed by Christ we can talk about that in church and in our homes, but we're not, it's not going to be true for us anywhere else. Guess what? Somebody else is going to tell us what is true in those other places. And it matters, um, especially when you think about the amount of time that a person spends in a place like school. Right? That's a lot of time. Being in a place where this difference is stark and amplified. Okay? Now, what is a human being um, redeemed by Christ for two obvious purposes, for faith and love. You know this, what is the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's faith. Okay? The second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Nowhere does God tell us that our objective in this life is to be highly productive. High, high productivity is only useful, it's only good, if you're using it to love your neighbor. If you're using it for yourself, then... This, I was going to use a profane expression. <laughs> you shouldn't, okay? <laughs> All right? You shouldn't, okay? So now I'm going to tell you what the goal of education should be for Christians. And you're going to see how completely otherworldly this is from what the Minnesota Department of Education can say. What is the goal of education? To form children in faith and love. Okay? To form children in faith and love. Of course, this includes learning things that have to do with being a worker, right? But it also tells you why you should be a worker, so you can love your neighbor. Of course, it tells you things about being an informed citizen, but why would you want to be an informed citizen? So that you can love your fellow citizens, so that your country 
can be a good country. Right? It recognizes that as much as children need to learn stuff, more importantly, they need to learn virtue. They need to learn virtue. We so often think about virtue as something that you just sort of pick up along the way. Which is easier? To learn your alphabet or to learn virtue? Which is easier? Alphabet. And yet, we're going to spend the majority of our time learning things that are easier, and the minority of our time, we're going to pick these up just along the way. Virtue. Okay? See the difference there? Right. Where love means, oh, everybody's okay and accepted. Yes. So are we, as Christians, we're defining that as God is defining it. Right? Okay. We're going to say, yes, there is such a thing as love, and somebody other than me and my feelings and what I ate last night is going to tell me what love is. Right? God's going to tell me what love is. Logan. The world forgets that when we, when we think of the word love, we forget that with love there's also discipline, punishment, yep. right. Yeah, right. So this is one of the failures of society at large. Love without discipline is not love, right? So you go ahead and do what you want, so long as you don't hurt anybody else, or at least appear to hurt anybody else. I'm not going to discipline you and tell you that what you love is actually not good. That it's not good for you. Turn it. Yeah. And so if we're willing to destroy life in the womb, yeah. you have no respect for life to start with, so then as it goes on, you don't respect law and order, you yeah. don't respect the uh, people. It's just the whole breakdown of society yeah. when we don't create <coughs> our life. Exactly, and you can see why, why uh, devaluing life is no big surprise if your starting place is, what's the difference between you and this chair, right? What's the difference between you and that tree out there? We kept on trees, right? So if the starting place is you're just a lump of flesh and you've got no soul, no dignity from God, then of course we're never going to value life. Of course. Natalie. Right. I mean, and God is also, I mean, you can't, well, you yeah. can't define, you can't put in a box, so. That's right. You can't do that with love either, I assume, because you're only as bigger than the box you're trying to put it in. That distinction that you just made between love as a feeling and love as, let's just say, something else, something more than a feeling, mm-hmm. is so important. Um, and I'm, I just hold on to that thought because when we put two different kinds of education alongside each other, which we'll call progressive education, and classical education. When we put those alongside each other, one of the things that you're going to see is that progressive education values the sentimental feelings above all else. Classical education says, you have feelings, but they might be wrong. <laughs> so we need to teach you to feel correctly. Okay? So hold on to that thought. Okay? i got a question for you. I'm not going to get done in 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, I, won't, I promise I won't go past 11.45. Are you okay with... If you, if you have to leave, don't hesitate. Um, but I, I'm, I don't want to rush, okay? I don't want to rush. Um, think back to that myth of neutrality. There's a hard truth that comes from that myth of neutrality. The idea that we can remove goodness or truth or morals or God from some setting without changing it. If you remove God from a setting, if you say God is not in this education, then what is it? It is a godless education. That is very stark. That is very stark. But it cannot be any other way. Anything that is not encouraging us in faith and love is hurting us in faith and love. Anything that is not encouraging us in faith and love, there's no neutral ground. There's no middle ground there. Any questions so far at this point? of interesting to think back that one of the reasons I started to have schools in this country yeah. was to teach children to read the Bible. Right, uh, yeah. I, a curriculum class I took, yeah. I found out later the teacher kind of went into secular humanism, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wrote my paper. Uh, but it's like the origin. Yeah. 
How many of you read the Bible in school growing up? Jeff did? At, at home, yeah. Okay. But it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago. I'm a bit surprised that you didn't. That you... Now, we prayed before lunch. Okay. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Right? Um, we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit more about the role of Bible, the Bible in education in just a moment. But that's a great observation. Um, you know, uh, it, what, what better way to learn to read than by reading the Scriptures, right? What better way to learn to reason than by reasoning according to the Scriptures? Okay? Just... Yeah. I just a question. I, I had a discussion about education with somebody and they commented that the government needs to be in charge of education so it's done right. Right. Because people don't know enough to do it right. Yeah. Is that part of that, you know, that <coughs> that it to make sure it's productive and that is that what that where that comes from? Yeah, I mean, there's another thing going on there, which is related to the fact that, um, for instance, <laughs> you can't sell unpasteurized milk in America because, you know, or in, in Minnesota, unless, unless under very rare circumstances, right? You can't distribute unpasteurized milk because somebody needs to protect you from getting salmonella, right? You can't make those decisions for yourself. So there's, there is some sense in which, I mean, I think go back all the way to the beginning. We need education to make people smarter. What if... What if the goal of education is just to make you, just make you smart enough, <laughs> but not so smart that you recognize that the choices that have been given to you are restricted? Right? Yeah. I, that sounds very conspiratorial. I, I was going to say, like, that almost kind of sounds like something that but you know, could be in existence. But you know what, though? Myron has said that to me since being up in college. Yeah. He, he, he kind of was borderline on it, being in school. Yeah. Now with being up in college. And his social um, sociology class and psychology class that he never thought would have been taught sure. that way at a Catholic yeah Catholic oh right college he he says that he yeah. goes you know they only keep us this close I'm gonna have to get him quote a quote of him saying that I should, yeah. I should get him on the phone yeah <laughs> not this morning the whole breakdown in education is when the government got involved in education. When, when it started out with a one-room school and it was a local school board. Yeah. Uh, when the federal government started handing out money for Title I, Title I, Title IX, all this stuff. Yeah. And then they started dictating what you can teach in your curriculum. Right. And the local people lost control and yeah. say so about what's happening in their own schools. Yeah. And it, it just, the progressiveness gets yeah. more and more and more. And, and also, I think with the, the breakdown of the economy where mothers had to go to work to help support the family. The economy, one, one salary could not support their families. Yeah. And you lose control of the parental uh, influence in, in finding out more what's going on because you're coming home all tired. And, right. and so you're not paying attention to what's happening at school. Have you ever tried to get a kid to tell you what happened at school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. And and I think that I think that you're... you're um, it plays into something very <coughs> fleshly in us. Go back to fallen into sin and corrupted. Um, it, life is much easier if someone else raises my kids. Right? Life is much easier if I don't have to think about that hard about what's good and bad or right and wrong because they're going to pick that up somewhere else. Right? Someone else who knows better than me is going to teach them. Right? Life is much easier that way. And so you can see how it, it, it appeals to something very fleshly in me. Logan. Yeah, yeah. Or they understand that um, like the parents are the reason why their kids are going to school, and so their parents are, are answerable for what they learn. So I better tell, I better tell mom and dad what I've learned, because they want to know, right? Because it matters to them. Okay, um, I, so bear with me for just a little bit here, more here. Um, one other thing that I think is worth pointing out, I think that a, 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 a point is often made that 
look, you know, you're in school for a long period of time. How long are you in school in the, during the day? Is it seven hours, seven, eight hours? Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, you could sit down at a desk and, you know, do math and do reading and do science and do all of these things um, and go home and spend the rest of the day studying the scriptures and learning about virtue, right? It's possible that you could do that. So you could devote seven hours a day to learning these subjects in school, and then you could go home and you could learn what you need for your soul, right? You can imagine that kind of a scenario. What is the reality, though? Logan. I gotta add, an aspect of your reality is that out of seven and a half hours, look at about three and a half. Okay, that's true, yes. Useful time being put to work. So we have a critique to make about efficiency already at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but but here's, here's one of the things that I, I think is important is to say that you are learning something even when you don't feel like you're learning something. What are you learning, right? My time is best spent in this building doing what, right? That's, that's, and this is what I want to point out. There's a difference, of course, between in priority. Which things should be put first and which things should be an afterthought, right? It's going to sound, it sounds revolutionary, sounds outrageous to say math and reading and science should be afterthoughts. They should be afterthoughts. The best part of the day, the point of time where you're most able to concentrate, when you're most productive, should be devoted to the most important thing. Right? And it, it, you know, we can kind of imagine to ourselves, we can fit in the other good stuff in the extra, the rest of the hours of the day. But the reality is, most often it gets squeezed into one hour on a Sunday morning, right? which is just it just can't compete. One hour on a Sunday morning can't compete with 35 hours a week in the classroom. Um, okay, and th so there is a, um, these, thing, uh, these things that we're talking about have been going on for a long time. This is the other cool picture I have. I, thought it was a cool yeah. picture, <laughs> I looked for a long time for this picture. It took me way too long. Um, <laughs> there, so like I said, John Dewey was the father of modern education beginning in the 20th century, and people, Christians, were already writing about the problems back then. So I want to read to you a quotation from a fellow, a Lutheran who was writing, um, I think 1910, that's when he's writing. He says, all of the powers of pedagogy are harnessed so that in schools, children's thoughts are directed to what is earthly, never to divine, never to what is divine. So think about it. Highly productive workforce. Every, if, if educators are doing their job, every bit of energy is spent on making a highly productive workforce. <coughs> dedicated to what is earthly and not to what is divine. All the influence that the school can bring to bear is meant to make pure children of the world out of the pupils. That's simply true. If, if it's not true, then what's the point, right? If the goal is not to make children of the world highly productive workers, then what is the point? How can anyone hope that all this will pass the children by without having an effect so that a very poor religious education offers a sufficient counterweight? Can anyone expect that such children will bring forth true fruits of godliness and serve their neighbor for God's sake? Okay, that's a stark, a stark statement. The image that he uses to describe it is, what happens? Without gusting winds, what happens to a tree over time if just a gentle breeze is blowing on it? The prevailing wind is in one direction. What happens? If that's the prevailing wind, the tree leaves. Okay? It's inevitable. It has an effect. It wears away. And it, uh, when we say we're not, we're not treating a person's soul under these circumstances, it's precisely those circumstances that we are treating a person's soul. There are two parts to this presentation. The second part. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to take another 55 minutes. But the second part is this. I, so first of all, I just want you to see the clear contrast between two potentially different goals for education. I want to talk specifically now about a certain kind of education a certain model for education that is particularly well-suited for raising Christians. Okay? To get there, I forgot, I had another picture. Take a look at this picture. Is this a beautiful flower? Yeah. Does anybody disagree? Anybody think it's an ugly flower? It could be a little wider, a little more Okay, no, good, good. Hold on to that thought for a second. Okay, hold on to that thought for a second. Um, that's really good. What if somebody came into this room and if, what if one of you had raised your hand? Maybe you, maybe you just didn't want to raise your hand because you're like, well, I think that's, I think that's pretty ugly. Somebody saw, so I say to you, forget about it. This is the ugliest flower I have ever seen. I think all flowers are ugly. What would you say to me? 
Yeah, mind your own business, right? Okay, so it, so I think that the more common response among people today would be simply this. You're entitled to your opinion. You can think that it's ugly. I think it's beautiful. We'll just leave it at that. We're going to agree to disagree. Okay? Here's the thing. It is a beautiful flower. You're not entitled to disagree with that. It is a beautiful flower. Why is this beautiful? God made it for one thing. What else? It's a flower. Look at the symmetry. Look at the color. Look at the proportion. Look at what it accomplishes in the world. It feeds the bees so they pollinate the plants. Right? It's a beautiful thing. It is not ugly. If it were, and, and so Logan can say, I think it could be more beautiful if it were open more. Right? Yeah, absolutely. A closed lily is not as beautiful as an open lily. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I'm telling you, that is objectively true. It is objectively true. You're not, you're not entitled to disagree about that. <laughs> Flowers are beautiful. Okay. Right. Now, the reason why I'm pointing that out to you is because one of the tenets of progressive education is that you are entitled to disagree about whether flowers are beautiful without any reference to an external standard. You can say this flower is not beautiful just because you feel that way. Okay? Now, it would be worthwhile to figure out why you feel a certain way about it. Maybe this flower reminds you of your mother's funeral, and so it makes you sad. That doesn't make it ugly. It's still beautiful, but it evokes a certain emotion in you, and that emotion doesn't change the objective fact. Okay? It doesn't change the reality. So I want to paint up for you a picture of the difference between classic, classical education and progressive education. Now, I'm going to, these words, you know something about progressivism. Classical, in this context, simply means um, going back to a form that used to be used forever. So think back to classical antiquity, the Greeks and the Romans, up through the Middle Ages. Only about in the Middle Ages, maybe the 1500s or 1600s or 1700s, that things really start to change in education. So we got to... You know, in the Western tradition, we have 1,700 years of a certain model of education. And then, with the Enlightenment, with the Industrial Revolution, with John Dewey, things changed dramatically. Okay, so put these two things side by side. The first tenet of progressive education is industrial. And that has to do with what we talked about before, a highly productive workforce. Okay? So the goal is simply to make production, right? to simply produce people who can make or do things. Okay? The second point is pragmatic. You can see this in the way that subjects are often distinct from one another, right? So there's some effort, I think, at, at times to do interdisciplinary things, right? To connect math and science and social studies, right? But by and large, what you learn in math class stays in math class and doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in social studies class, right? So it's very pragmatic. You need to learn very specific things so that you can do specific things. That's what pragmatic means under these circumstances. A very narrow set of skills for a narrow set of tasks. It is also critical. This is critical not in terms of critical thinking, but critical in terms of tradition is out the window. The great heritage of Western civilization is out the window. Now Western civilization, those dead white men, they are the enemy. Right? This is what progressive education says. Forget about reading Plato. Forget about reading Aristotle. Forget about reading anybody who was wise. If their skin was white, forget about them. And that's just talking about race, right? That's talking about race. There are all kinds of other ways that tradition is thrown out of the window. How many times have you heard about kids who in school are told to disagree with what their parents have taught them? Right? What your parents told you about this, say your sex, is not true. Right? Okay? So that has to do with a critical outlook. Okay? The last thing is back to what you said, Natalie, subjectivity. So the goal in progressive education says, look, inside every little human being is a nature that is good that must be let blossom. And it's a nice picture, right? You plant a seed in the ground and you let that seed grow according to its nature and it's beautiful, right? So what matters most is giving a child the ability to express themselves, regardless of whether they have learned how to express themselves or whether they have anything worth expressing, right? Whatever you have, whatever you feel, is what matters most. You can see this on a high level, sort of in universities. Have you heard about like microaggressions and trigger warnings, right? Because in class, what matters most is not the truth or falsehood of something you might be taught, but how you feel about it. That's what matters most. Okay? These things are all swirling around in progressive education. Classical education is different than every form. 
In the first place, it is liberal. And here's another word I need to define. When I say liberal, I don't mean progressive. I don't mean anything goes. Okay? The word liberal has its roots. The use of, this use of the word liberal has its roots in what are called the liberal arts. Have you heard of the liberal arts? Uh, grammar, logic, rhetoric, math, astronomy, music, and another one. I'll show you in a second. Okay? But the liberal arts are designed to make free people. To make free people. Liberal, liberated people. Think back to that proverb already at the beginning. Okay? What is the point of wisdom so that you are not seduced by false things? Right? That's what freedom is. To have the knowledge and the skills, the developed intellect, so that you are not led astray by propaganda and lies. That's what it means to be free. That's the goal of liberal education. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So you can see how this is problematic in America right now. Are we liberal? Well, in the progressive sense, yes. But how about in the sense of like being free from propaganda, right? Not falling victim to propaganda, right? In fact, that's why, that's why media is so massive, because people believe it, right? If people didn't believe it, it wouldn't happen. Why do we believe it? Because we have not developed the faculties that are needed to understand it. If you have ever had a conversation with somebody, you're like, they don't know what I'm talking about. Or that argument that they made doesn't make any sense. You ever had that kind of a conversation right? on Facebook? Right? So, yeah, uh, the problem is because we're not free. Right? We're not free. It's like when you tell somebody that they're liberated, they go, yeah. yeah. If you can get them to believe that yeah. they're liberated, then you swear away. Yeah, right? You don't have to think this way. Right? The next, next tenet is integrated. So instead of discrete subjects that are used to teach you skills to do specific things in life, classical education is integrated. It says in the first place, it all comes from God. Right? That means that math and science and social studies and literature and English, they are all related to each other, not as like various subjects you might learn in school, but as a part of one meaningful whole that informs your soul, most of all. So what does math have to do with God? Well, God invented it, right? Why is it that 1 plus 1 equals 2? Why is it that we can make sense? You ever heard of the Fibonacci sequence? Yes. This beautiful sequence, beautiful, that you actually see in nature. It's a sequence of numbers that you see illuminated in nature. Why is that the case? Is it just random? Is it just the product of evolution? No. It's because God designed the world to be meaningful. And when we are educating and being educated, it is in view of that integrated whole. All of these parts work together and wisdom and virtue... Wisdom and virtue are more important than any given subject because with wisdom and virtue, you can use what you have learned well. So why are they trying to get rid of history? Yeah, well, because history is wrong, right? The way that history has been told forever is colonial and white supremacist. Right? I mean, this is, I know this sounds, you're probably surprised to hear me talking about these things. <laughs> Maybe, or alarmed that I'm talking about them, but it's true. It's here. This is the way that things are, are viewed, right? Yeah. And that gets to tradition, right? Why study history when everybody got it wrong before us, right? Why study history if, if they were all wrong in their outlook from the beginning? Classical education says, look, there have been a lot of people who are a lot wiser than me for a long time in this world, and I should probably listen to what they say first. I can criticize it later. I can criticize it later. But for now, I need to hear what they said before I criticize it. Same thing goes with, you know, your inheritance, children's inheritance from their parents. Listen to your parents first. Later, when you're 33 years old, then you can criticize your parents. <laughs> Which I would never do. <laughs> Last of all, it is disciplined. Okay? See how this connects to subjectivity. If instead of my feelings being supreme, there is something true and good and beautiful which is absolute and unchangeable, and that means that I need to be disciplined. My heart and my passions and my feelings and my loves need to be trained. It means that if we acknowledge there are things you love that you shouldn't love, those things need to be dealt with, right? So it is discipline. No. Okay? Right. I promise to get done here in just a little bit. C.S. Lewis said it this way. The wise men of old, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. So there's a reality, there's a truth, there's a goodness, there's a beauty, and it's here, and when we're born, we're over here, and the goal of education is to get you over here. Right? To 
because this is what's true and good and beautiful. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. So here's the definition, a, a couple definitions of class religion. First of all, teaching wisdom and virtue primarily. Starting with wisdom and virtue. With which you can do anything. Right? You can handle whatever subject you want if you have wisdom and virtue. Learning to love what is good, true, and beautiful. And I think that this is such an important distinction to make. It is not learning to know certain things, but it is learning to love something. It is learning to love something. Why is it lovable? It's because it's from God. Yes, that's right. That's right. Now, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna slide ahead here. I talked about the liberal arts. This is how we make men free. Here are the, here are the parts of the liberal arts: the trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. I'll talk about those in more detail in a second. Arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, which sound like a strange conglomeration of items here, but these are all related to an understanding that God has designed the world to work in a certain way, um, having to do with number and space and time. So arithmetic is numbers, just numbers together. Geometry is numbers in space, okay? Astronomy is numbers, or music is numbers in time, right? Pitches are all related to each other by fractions, and their timing is related by uh, a time signature. And astronomy is number in time and space, right? So the distance to the planets or the motions of the planets, that's time and space, okay? But the more fundamental, the more fundamental part of it is this trivium. Let me tell you about this, and this will be the last, the last thing that I do here. One of the things that has come to the light in the last, let's say, 100 years since modern education really came into the fore, people have been pushing back against it, and there's been this understanding that children learn, not, uh, not that people have different learning styles, but there are obviously different developmental stages, right? That's obvious to everybody. Like, how you learn at one age is different from another. Classical education has for a long time understood this, okay? And says that for children about from kindergarten through fifth grade, is the time that is best to learn things by memory, right? to memorize things, to make observations about the world, to learn how to interpret signs. So now you'll notice here that this is grammar not strictly talking about a language, but everything has a grammar. Okay? Math has a grammar, how the <laughs> signs work, what does that two mean, what does that plus sign mean? Right? Uh, science has a grammar, what does it mean that this animal is furry and that animal is not? There's a grammar to these subjects, interpreting signs understanding, uh, making observations, and cultivating your memory, filling your memory with these things. It applies to any subject, as I said. Memory, recitation, and copy work are emphasized. So one of the, one of the best ways to receive the tradition that we have before us is simply to imitate it. Right? What makes for a good artist? You start by imitating great artists. What makes for a good thinker? You start simply by imitating good thinkers. So in this stage, Kids are reading lots of narratives, lots of stories that are time-tested, beautifully written, virtuous stories. Okay? One of the ways to think about the grammar stage and logic and rhetoric is in terms of a building. Okay? So in the grammar stage, you are learning what the different materials are. Here's a piece of wood. Here's a two-by-four. Here's a sheet of plywood. Here are nails. Here are screws. You're learning what they are. You're putting them into categories. You're committing them to memory so that they are at your disposal. Okay? That's what's happening at the grammar stage. The logic stage comes along when kids naturally start questioning things, when they naturally start arguing with their parents about things, right? Sometime around 6th or 8th grade, maybe earlier, depending on how fiery your kids are, okay? But now you've got the tools, right? You spent the first five years understanding the materials so that when it's time to start asking questions, you know what materials you're working with, okay? So question and argument are encouraged, right? But they're on the basis of things that are established facts, they're true or good, okay? How do these facts relate? So think about building materials again. If in the grammar stage you're learning what the materials are, in the logic stage you're putting them together. Here's how you take a board and hammer a nail into it, okay? Here's how you make joints and stick these pieces of wood together, okay? The last stage comes later, and this is when kids have developed the, the knowledge that they need across subjects, across subjects, and the capacity for thinking logically about them, making deductions, understanding what is true, and being able to identify things that are false. But now they need to learn how to express themselves. So notice how different this is from a progressive education, which starts with self-expression. Okay? Classical education says, express yourself once you have learned something to express and can think about it properly. Okay? This is where you take the building materials that you have now assembled into parts, and you construct a beautiful building. Okay? 
now you know what a beautiful building, now you're learning what a beautiful building looks like. You have the materials, you have the wherewithal to hammer those boards together, but it needs to look beautiful. It needs to communicate something well. All right? Any questions so far? This, uh, I, I'm telling you this for a couple of reasons. One, because it pertains to a different style of education, which is what we're employing in the homeschool co-op here at Concordia, something I'll talk about more in a second. But it also is very relevant for how we think about teaching kids in the church about Jesus. So just think about those stages. One of the, one of the critiques that I want to offer, and I want to I entertain with you over the coming weeks, is that the time for kids to be memorizing the catechism is not in 6th or 8th grade, when they're, in the, when they're in the questioning stage, but in the K through 5th stage, when memory comes easily to them, and they're delighted. Kids, you, you want to make a kid happy? Ask them something that they know. <laughs> right? Tell me the ABCs. Why is that so delightful? Because they know it. Okay? So you give them things and teach them what they are delighted to know. And that's the time to, to put all of this into their heads. So that when they get to the, log, to the questioning stage, you have something to work with. Okay? <laughs> um, here's, okay, what's next? First of all, any questions? So here's two, three things. Number one is I invite any conversation about this that you might want to have. I would love to hear how this has struck you, whether you disagreed with me, whether you found things new or interesting or surprising and disagreeable. Okay? I'd love to talk more, and we're going to talk more in the coming weeks specifically about learning God's Word at the church. The second thing is uh, the homeschool co-op. We've had uh, really a delightful success with this homeschool co-op. On an average Monday, we might have anywhere from 12 to 20 kids here on a Monday morning from 8 until noon. And these kids are learning Latin. They're learning Latin. They're learning the catechism. It's gone in such a way that I think it is time for that to expand. And I think next year, in collaboration with parents who are interested in participating, we might move to try and do four days a week with more deliberate instruction. Right? So um, much more like a school but uh, still parents are involved as homeschooling parents. Okay? Um, so what, basically what I'm saying is I want to offer this to anybody who is interested in a Christian education. I want to offer it to anybody who's interested in a Christian education. I think it is fundamental to what we do as a church. I think it's fundamental to what I do as a pastor. What more important work could there be than for me to help educate children in the faith, to train children in faith and love? Okay? So if you have any interest in this, if you're even just curious about it or you want to know what I mean or what, what is involved, there are lots of logistics to figure out, but we're going to do it collaboratively. right? So there's going to be lots of participation from parents, um, but this is what we're aiming at, that classical education. Classical Christian education is what we're aiming at, and I want any kids who want it to be able to have it. Okay? So that's another important thing. Lastly, uh, I already said something about what's going on here at Concordia. Think, for instance, about uh, confirmation instruction or Sunday school instruction or what parents do for their children in their homes learning the Bible. That's what we're going to talk about in the subsequent weeks in this Bible study. Um, so come back for that. Bring your questions. And I'm going to stop talking. I ran out of coffee a long time ago. But I hit my mark, and it's not 11.45 yet. Okay? All right, let's close with prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming out today.